Acts chapter 2. We'll read verses 36 through 38. I have not changed these remarks from what I gave this morning at Rock Hill, and so I want to come and present them to you from a different perspective, from the, different, from the perspective of your pastor, and um, I believe that they will be, uh, I pray, appropriate for what we have to do tonight and, and what's needed tonight. Let's read and then we'll pray. In Acts 2, verse 36, um, Luke writes that all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, I love and adore you. I thank you, Father God, for the opportunity to come and to preach this. I pray, Father God, that it's that every time I preach, Father God, it's tailored for the people who hear. It's guided by the Holy Spirit. It's informed, Father God, by your word, Father. And it's ready and prepared for those people, Father God, who are here right now who need this, Father. And I know, God, there's going to be somebody here. It's not a mistake, Father God, because it's so much against my nature to come and do what I'm doing tonight. So, Father God, I know that you have done this for a reason. There's somebody here who needs to hear this, Father God. And I'm praying right now, God, that we can assemble, come together, Father God, and hear exactly, Father God, what you have to say. We love and adore you. We thank you, Father God, for the opportunity that you would come forth, Father God, and do just in our hearts, God, what is needed right now. In the name of Christ Jesus, Lord, I humbly pray. Amen. And look, I think it's incumbent upon us as a church to focus our attention away from the distractions of this world. I think if there's anything that we have to acknowledge, that we have to embrace, is the fact that we are, we are coming of age ourselves, we are raising families and having children and, and seeing our, our young people come to adulthood in a world that's, that's growing in its, in its wicked intensity. Um, I want to hypnotize the eschatology today. We understand that, biblically speaking, we're in the last days because those last days began with the, with the ascension of Christ to the right hand of the throne of His Father. Okay, So we've been in the last days since Jesus departed for heaven, awaiting His return. We are in that final moments awaiting His return. Is it more imminent than it was before? The world's more wicked than it was before. Not that it wasn't wicked. Don't paint any rosy pictures about any time period because to be honest with you, they were all corrupt at their base. But it grows with intensity and allure. And so for that reason, we're trying to shepherd ourselves and others in a time when it's so easy to get caught up in the matters of this world. We've got to plant that gaze firmly on the only important matters, Jesus Christ and His Gospel. This is a gospel-centered message about the gospel in particular thematically, and we've got to do that. Here's the idea. The idea is this, is that if we don't love the gospel, we can never convince the world the gospel is true. We can't go out with witness if we don't love the gospel. If we're going to sit here to die or any time and the gospel is preached and something is unthrilled in us, then it's hard to say that we love the gospel. And we as born-again believers in Christ Jesus are the only ones on this planet capable of loving the gospel. We've got to love it. We've got to be thrilled by it. We can't, nothing can compete with it for us. I think the problem I've got is that for myself, beginning with me and radiating out to everyone with whom I have contact, the reality is I think most of us aren't really gospel-centered at all. We're centered on ourselves. We're centered on what we want to do. And when we want to do it and how we want to do it, 
we are selfish and self-centered. Almost everybody I know. Not Christ-centered. And so how do we become Christ-centered? I want to talk about that. I'm going to look at that. I won't finish today because it's a lifetime commitment. I'm going to do my best. I'm going to say this. I think there are two groups in this room right now, even as small as this is. Understanding this is the core of the church in so many ways. It's a term we use around here a lot. It's true. It's the core of the church. In so many ways, the people here with us right now are the people you just can't make mad. Pretty good thing to know in church, by the way. Because it's easy to make everybody mad. Because everybody shows up with their lip poked out. All the time. I mean, all the time. As a former pastor of mine said, like coiled snakes ready to get mad. Just looking for something. So this is the course, who we got. This is our people. This is the people. Um, and I, I'll be honest with you, as a Southern Baptist, as I said to those folks this morning, I think that ought to really matter to us. Do you know why? We're the, I, I called it this morning, we're the disappearing uh, convention. One sixteen million, now less than that. But the real tragedy that was, even when we were 16 plus million, the largest Protestant denomination in the United States, any, on any given Sunday, you couldn't find 10 million believers. I don't even know why we carry them on the rolls. I don't have any clue why we keep people on the rolls that we have not seen in 30 years. That you couldn't count on for anything. If we're really building community, this is really a family. That person hadn't been to church in the last year. I'm just really not sure they're part of the family. The reality is this. I think we get, have to stop. I'm going to use this term later. We really have to stop coddling people. We really have to stop making excuses for people. They're either getting it or they're not. I'm afraid we're coddling people all the way to hell. We're making them think it's okay to be them. We're saying we're wrong when they're mad every time. We'll change what we do to try to suit them, won't we? In an instant. In an instant. Just to try to get them to come to church. Here's the reality. If you give it $100 bills in most Baptist churches, a lot of people on the road wouldn't come. You couldn't pay them to come and sit in the pews. There's a difficult situation we're in. So now we've got two different kinds of people here. At least on this church roll. Let's put it that way. And I think they're going to take what I have to say tonight tragically different, or in tragically different ways. Um, 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul tells us, he says the natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The gospel can only be discerned. And what I mean by discerned, and I think my best definition, three words understood, appreciated, and applied. Really understood. Really appreciated. Only believers appreciate the gospel and apply. Only believers can give, can live gospel-centered lives. A lost man can't do it. By a person who's indwelt by God, the Holy Spirit. If you're here today and born again, then you are indwelled by God Himself. The Holy Spirit exists to live within you on this earth. Only for the sinner, saved by the grace of God, is the truth of Christ what our Lord intends for it to be. A lifeline against the endemic death that comes naturally to the sinner in this world and the next. We know that. We know we are sinners because, and I've said this so many times, we know we're sinners because we're going to do what? Die. Because Ezekiel tells us the soul who sins must die. Because Paul tells us the wages of sin is death. We are dying slowly every day. Even the babies are slowly but surely dying. And some of us, it started to, the process has started to kind of speed up, hasn't it? It's coming faster today than it did yesterday. 
We are sinners, and therefore we die. And James explains in James 1.21, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. The word implanted, the engrafted word, the King James calls it, tied on and growing together. The word engrafted, so thick and so beautiful in the old King James. Planted by God in the hearts of men and women. It's the only hope for your sin and mine and the only place to turn in a world of rampant wickedness. The Word. The Word is the only hope. The Gospel is the only hope. Boy, I'm going to sound like a broken record tonight. It's only the Gospel. Sin is the issue that must be addressed today within the church and without. So, church, I know you're here kind of on safari a little bit. It's me on a Sunday night and... And I'm preaching a sermon that I preach somewhere else. And you're just kind of watching a little bit. I get that. I get that. But we're here to talk specifically to the church. The lost are going to get their share, but church, you're going to get yours too. J.C. Ryle said this. He said, he said, The man who does that glory in the gospel can surely know little of the plague of sin that's within him. I believe that applies both to the lost and to the saved. I be honest, I'll be honest with you. I think there are a lot of believers in this room that have not recently considered the plague of sin within them. There are a lot of believers in this room who haven't thought about it. They're so distracted. They're so caught up in the kids and the dirty laundry and the bills and the work and all that kind of junk. And we never stop. We don't have any time to stop and to think or to ponder. And we're a little scared to, aren't we? Because we stop and we think and we ponder what will happen. We'll see staring back at us from the darkness. All those problems and all that sin and all those things we lie about and all the things that we can never admit to ourselves. All those things we're a little scared to do that. That within our members still to this day, even under the blood, is a plague of sin that condemns us. That we have to wrestle with and grapple with. Without the Holy Spirit and in turn the gospel that allows us to comprehend, a man or a woman is caught in the direst of situations in terms of the debt of their sin, its magnitude and its solution. The reality is this. Without the gospel, you've got no hope, not just in terms of a solution to your sin, but any hope in understanding just how sinful you really are. The one thing that I absolutely know is this, that in that moment of salvation, that moment of repentance, it dawns upon you just how dark and black and evil and wicked and hell-bound you really are. We shouldn't lose sight of that. It's the one thing that's, to be honest with you, within the church and leading a church and being a servant in a church for, for a number, number of years now that's always troubled me was people just didn't seem to talk like they were sinners anymore or that they ever were. The gospel just broke me all the time. Every time I looked at it, I turned the page and all I saw were the ways that I let my God down. And it seemed like everybody else would just blitzing through life like they had no problems at all. And I just wondered. First off, I blame me. And then I started looking and saying, maybe they are not as serious. Maybe they don't understand the way they ought. So let's try to understand. You know, the point of contention is not if we are sinners, but have we embraced the only remedy for sin? As John writes in 1 John uh, 8 through 10, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. It's every conversation you can have with people around here. Well, I'm no worse than everybody else. What God, what we call fun, God calls sin. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and the word is not in us. It's the gospel which relates the finished work of Christ Jesus and his salvation to the lost sinner, which eternally saves and infinitely atones for the sins of men and women like those in this room. It is by the gospel the work of Jesus gets to the heart of man. It's by the gospel that the blood of the cross is applied to the sins of this room. It's by the gospel. If you have not trusted Christ Jesus with your sins, by repenting of your sins and believing the gospel, as Christ explains in Mark 1.15, then you're in terrible danger. I don't ever want to let up about that. We don't talk about it enough. We can't become so genteel that the word hell never comes from our mouths. You can't scare people to heaven. That's abundantly clear. But you have to warn them. To be the watchman set over Israel that we are today, we must preach that hell is real and hell is hot and hell is eternal. What's the reason for global missions? Because hell is real and hot and eternal. What's the reason to go around the corner and do missions in the school and in this community? Because hell is real and it's hot and it's eternal. We have to tell people. We can never, ever turn our backs on that. That is the truth. The final fate of all who reject the truth of Golgotha in favor of the faux security of this world is found most succinctly in Revelation 20.15, which says that if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The Bible uses euphemisms. You know what a euphemism is? It's a polite way of saying something unpleasant. I believe every time the Bible talks about hell, it uses a euphemism because I believe that the English language is not capable of capturing the depths of how terrible hell is. I believe the Hebrew language and the Greek language fail in defining something that is infinite in its punishment. There are no words for hell. Fire is not enough. Torment is not enough. Torture is not enough. Eternal death that never dies is not enough. Everlasting, forever and ever. They're just not enough to define it. They relate terrifying truths. And these euphemisms are extraordinarily consistent. What we refer to as the eternal hell, the lake of fire, is a flaming pit of infinite destruction and eternal punishment reserved for the devil and his angels. And the final place of retribution for those who've infinitely offended the one true God. We say this all the time. Typically, to be honest with you, we're quoting David Platt. I don't mind doing it. He wants us to, I believe. Why is hell eternal? Because God's nature is, is an infinite God, is infinity. And because God is infinitely offended at my sin, it now requires an infinite punishment. For God to be paid back for the sins of my life, it requires an eternity to do that. We've infinitely offended the one true God. Now, though you may believe that choices are without consequence, I'm going to tell you that the choice you make tonight under the pressure of the gospel is the weightiest that you'll make in your entire life. Hear the gospel and repent of your sins before it is too late. I will, I will never stop saying that. Repent of your sins and believe the gospel.
write it as an epitaph on my tombstone. Repent of your sins and believe the gospel. May no man walk through life, stumble through life, crawl through life, and not know that he is required to repent of his sins and believe the gospel. Everyone. Worldwide. Now for the church, us, men and women present who have been truly saved and made whole in Christ by His blood and righteousness, the call today is in the distraction, the deflection, and the delusion of the church. Here's the reality. The church has got to get serious, folks. We'll spend so much time worrying about things that don't matter. A bunch of nonsense. If it's not a gospel issue, it's not an important issue. If it's not a gospel issue, it's not even worth arguing about, to be honest with you. If it affects the peace and the harmony of the body, sure. But the reality is this, we're here to focus on the gospel. Our daily commitment to the truth is the greatest need with which we must grapple in order that the powerful words of the writer of Hebrews can and must be fulfilled in our lives. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, you know where I'm going to go. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, no longer can the world afford, folks, or the church coddle. Folks, we just can't. We can't do it anymore. We can't do it anymore. We have to have serious believers, and we just can't. I don't know what we've done, and I'm going to share this with you honestly and straight from my heart. I believe I owe you that. I think we're going to manage to raise up generations of people younger than, than I am who are tough-minded and committed and strong about the gospel. But I'm fearful we raised up, we've raised up grandparents, grandparents, in this church and in churches everywhere that, to be honest with you, just simply can't take very much. They can't, they can't do very much. They need to be catered to. They need to be considered in everything. And if you cross them, oh my goodness. Folks, we've got to be tougher than that. We shouldn't have to make special allowances for every single group in the church. We shouldn't have to do that. Do you know why? Because the gospel ought to tie us together. The unity and commitment that we have over the gospel ought to make each and every one of us a serious believer. Sober-minded and serious person. As we've tried to change and manipulate and make everybody in the church happy so they'd come to church, what we've managed to do is, is dim the light of the gospel. We've managed to tell the world, come here and we're Burger King. You can have it just the way you want it. And it's nonsense and it's destroyed the church. We've taken people that ought to be serving the Lord and we've made them into customers. Criticizing every single thing the church does. But with no stake, no skin in the game. We simply can't do that anymore, folks. Can't do it. I don't believe our Lord can stomach half-hearted and immature believers of any age. Of any age. 
This is a call for each one of us. I'm 50 years old. If you're a man in this room my age or older, we've got to grow up. We're not grown up enough. We're not strong enough. We're not steely enough. We're not ready for the battle. As I told you, the folks this morning, I'll never forget sitting around that table in China. Eating with this group of men. All older than I was. First thing they asked me was, I afraid? And I said, no. And the reason was simply because I'm too stupid to be afraid most of the time. And then I started, when we went around the room, and every one of those men at that table had been in prison. I don't know what would happen with our churches if our men went to prison. To be honest with you, I think a significant portion of the men in Southern Baptist churches right now in the 21st century would turn their backs on the Lord if they had to go to prison for it. Would abandon their faith if they had to go to prison for it. We can't take it if the air conditioner goes out and we're expected to languish in prison. I think we're in a difficult situation and we have to change. We have to grow up. The forest is the evidence. The great cloud of witnesses. Uh, the writer of Hebrews draws our attention. Look, I just, he just shared it with us in Hebrews chapter 11. Here's your witnesses. Here are the people that really sacrificed. They gave everything. Here's Isaiah sawn in two with a wooden saw. You can take it. You can survive. You can witness and share and struggle. Why? Because men gave up so much more. Your life isn't that hard. Proclaims by their blood and sacrifice the power and majesty of the truth of Christ expressed in the gospel. Their blood, their sacrifice declares this. When right now men and women go forth and they're martyred like in the 20th century, in the 21st century, in places like, like Egypt or India, China or Vietnam, when martyrs are made, their blood cries out to us, stand with courage. Men and women far greater than we are have died for the glory of God and the truth of the gospel. They are what Hebrews chapter 11, 38, chapter 11, verse 38, and NASB calls men of whom the world was not worthy. He holds over our heads. He said, look, you feel so bad? There are the martyrs. Poured out their blood. They didn't waste it or toss it aside as worthless. They weren't, they weren't suicidal in some way. But they willingly give it away in a divine and God-honoring hatred of life. Because that's what we're supposed to do. You know what the problem with us is? Many people in the church of the 21st century love the world entirely too much. We just love it. We can't get enough of it. We love to fish and hunt and ride around and do every doggone thing in the world. But what the gospel demands. And we're going to go trembling and weeping to our graves because we haven't been longing for heaven. We've wanted more life. How dare we? How dare we care about this? How dare we want to live in the sewer when God is summoning us to the palace? It ought to, it ought to make us feel dirty to be in it. And there's too many church members who just love it. They just love it. They can't get enough of it. The things of this world, the material goods of this world, all they dream of is that until it becomes an eye. Until they're drowning in it. And then they wonder, what in the world have I done? Yeah, you've done it. Because you focused on something you had no business ever focusing on. 
I've done the only reason I can say this is because I've spent so many decades of my life wasted dreaming of the things that this world had, not ever realizing they were dung. They were nothing. They were worthless. Tertullian wrote, The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. In the shadow of those who've sacrificed so much for the gospel, how should we as a church react? First, we've got to put aside everything that restrains or hampers our faith. Now, this is for all of us. It's not for that church. This is for you right now. For me, as I speak, I'm torn by it. If there's something standing between me and my faith, I don't care if it's a job or a hobby or a sport or something I like to do or a, or a prejudice. Or a prejudice. Something I learned. I've never questioned. The reality is this. If God's not calling on you to hate some of the things you've thought your whole life, then God's never called you to start with. You don't belong to Him. Because God doesn't hate the way people do. God hates sin. God despises sin. Follow Christ, you must focus your life and your heart on Him, His Word, His will, and you can't afford to be caught in the ways of this wicked world. So often the gospel is presented uh, to and by believers as free and loving. And it's those things, absolutely. Christ made the gospel free because we could never afford it. Understand that the gospel isn't free because it's cheap. The gospel is free because there's no way to buy it. So infinitely valuable is the finished work of Christ on the cross, the precious blood of Jesus that takes away the sins of the world, that we could never afford a single molecule with all the world's riches. If you amassed it all, you could never buy even one tiny molecule. Cut off from the glory of God and the redemption paid for by the Son, the gospel is both valuable beyond measure and offered free of charge. Derek Thomas writes, The gospel is not God loves us, but God loves us at the cost of His Son. Don't, don't forget that. God loves you because He slew His child. God loves you because He had a perfect Son and He murdered Him on Calvary. God loves you because He had a sinless and spotless Lamb that was torn asunder on Golgotha. That's what enables the love of God to be spread abroad to the entire world is the sacrifice of Jesus. The blood is, the, the love of God is drenched in the blood of Jesus. Because the cosmically costly, that's the blood, has been bestowed upon us. The wicked, corrupt, and undeserving. That's who we are. Then we must now fix our eyes on Jesus and His gospel. Fix your eyes. How dare we live any other way? Eyes fixed on Jesus. The only thing that matters is Jesus. It's not my stupid job or, or, or all these things or all the things I think are important. Only the gospel matters. But do that. Fix my eyes. Why? Because it's what God demands. It's what the truth demands. It's what the sacrifice of Jesus demands. He gave everything. He bore my sins and my shame. He broke my shackles and set me free. And now I must, I absolutely must, do what He wills. That's following the Gospel. That's living out the Gospel. Must loudly and triumphantly live out that gospel for all the world to see. Nobody should ever doubt us.
because it's all over us. Every desire of the flesh and mind must be brought under the control of the truth of Jesus and we can no longer see ourselves as anything but a follower of Christ. Who am I? I'm a follower of Jesus. All I am. It's all you got. Every epitaph on every tombstone the same. Christ follower. He only wanted to talk about one thing and that was Jesus. The only appropriate response the gospel has always been given in the words of Jesus himself. You know this verse spoken through Luke 9.23. states unequivocally. And he said, well, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Deny yourself. Take up your cross every single day and follow Jesus. No vacations. No time off. No, I'm too mad. No, I don't like those kind of people. I won't talk to those kind of people. None of that garbage. That's lost. That's devilish. That's wicked. That's condemned. That's hellish. That's what that is. And I'll proclaim it from this mountaintop and from the gutter if I have to. We live out the gospel for the good of those who are lost. And it doesn't matter where they come from. Does not matter. Please, church, before we reach a time of commitment, consider the works of Jesus on your behalf. Matters which are beyond the loss to understand or appreciate, but which will be the very spine of your life in Christ. As Oswald Chambers wrote, there's nothing attractive about the gospel to the natural man. The only man who finds the gospel attractive is the one who is convicted of sin. Only the Son of God could have lived perfectly so that a perfect sacrifice could be offered. Only Jesus could have died for your salvation, bearing the sins of the world on His shoulders. And He did just that. Only Christ could have risen from the grave for your benefit. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15-20, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. All this completed so that someday for all of us who are believers in Christ, the words of the Apostle in 1 Corinthians 15-54 can be ultimately realized. For all of us, when he writes, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. The death that, that attacks us, the death that we cannot avoid, death swallowed up in victory. That's the gospel. Death swallowed up in victory is the gospel. No longer bound by death is the good news. The gospel of which we pledged our lives and hearts and minds. You know, if others found it a truth worth dying for, and today my hope and my prayer, my mission is that you'll be willing today to give your life for it. That moment, at that very instant where the gospel consumes you in perfection and in maturity, and that's what I want to happen. There's some people today maybe going to take a giant leap forward in their understanding and commitment to the gospel. They're not going to see it as kids anymore. They're for the first time, they're going to put on maturity. And they're really going to see the gospel as something worth living and dying for. You're going to find what's most essential when you become mature in that way. When it consumes and overwhelms you. You're going to discover the gospel worthy of dying for 
is also the truth worth living for. Now look, what are those who are without the grace of God in their lives? Who have rejected the truth of Christ Jesus, who look to the world for its pleasures and its truth. And there are a lot of people, there are people hiding in churches, folks. Hiding in churches. And they're kind of consistent. I mean, they're a, they're a one Sunday or two Sunday a month kind of person. And we kind of give them credit because in the Southern Baptist Church it's rude. It's rude to question somebody. We don't have to get rude. We got some people going to die and go to hell on our church roll. Never lived a day of their lives. Look, I've given you the illustration before when I gave that church this morning. I have to share it again. I've told you, I know I'm not ever going to have very much. And I'm fine with that. I'm not crying about it. It's okay. I'm not going to leave much of an inheritance to my children. A little something. And it's going to be it but I want to leave an inheritance of truth and the gospel. I don't want my kids looking down that grave and thinking, did my daddy go to hell? Because I tell you what, I've been with those families and they'll say all this kind of stuff and they'll talk big and I'll get in this pulpit and try to preach them to heaven and I've done it. But they're going to look down on their daddy or look down on his remains, their mom or her remains and they'll think, did my daddy really believe? Because he didn't always live that way. He didn't act that way. Is my daddy really a born-again believer? Don't do that to your children. May your witness be a sure witness. Now look, what of those who are without the grace of God in their lives? Who rejected the truth of Christ Jesus? Who looked to the world for its pleasures and its truth? The final appeal is in the focal passage for today. Peter has preached the gospel in a way which has never been heard before. And I mean it. It's delivered by a sinner made whole by that truth which spans the entire Bible as he preaches it. He starts at Genesis and he preaches the entire Bible. He doesn't leave anything out. If you're led to believe the gospel, then you must believe the entire Bible and not just the parts which agree with your presuppositions. I think there's a lot of so-called believers in churches right now making that mistake. There's some things they know the Bible teaches and they simply will not accept them and they think somehow they can put that on the blind side. Well, I know it says that, but I really don't want to do that. I like my grudges. I like my racism. I like to keep my money in my pocket where I want it. I like to do this. I like to do that. But all these things they like. They know the Bible condemns. They know God hates. And we act like we can somehow ignore that. That somehow John 3.16 is all God really cares about. Show me where he says that. Show me where he tells you John 3.16 is more important than any other verse of Scripture. Because he never says that. If you can't believe at all, you can't believe any of it. I can't take John 3.16 literally and read everything else figuratively. I can't pin my hopes on John 3.16 and not hear what God says about those things that I keep wanting to do. That I think are so important I've got to stay that way. At the culmination of this epic sermon, Peter says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And if you're led to the cross today by the words of truth, then understand that Jesus is both Christ, the Christos, the chosen or anointed one, the Savior and sacrifice for the sins of the world. He is absolutely that. That is who Peter has spent this time declaring Jesus to be. But He's also the Lord. 
He's a kurios. He is one who experiences absolute ownership rights. He is the final authority. In other words, for Jesus to save you, He must also be your Lord. For Jesus to die for you, He must also be your Master. See, we want to have the salvation and maintain ownership rights. And I'm going to say this because very few of you know, this is, please don't be insulted if you're from Mize. Well, I'm from Mize. I've heard that before. You know what that means? I will do just as I please. That's fine. You'll probably go to hell. No offense, but it's the truth. Well, I'm from Mize. We can't do that. No, no, you can't. Jesus breaks your heart, you can. You can turn your back on anything if Jesus breaks your heart. But we got lots of men around here thinking that somehow being from Mize is going to get you to heaven. I'm here to tell you, being from Mize may send you directly to hell. Not because Jesus does not love and did not die for our tiny, beautiful little town, but because there's some people out there who think they can stay unchanged somehow and somehow God will let them in. Simply put, the gospel does not work that way. Jesus will either be our Lord and Savior or He will never be our Savior. He cannot and He will not be one without the other. The enduring declaration of God is one of the very first statements that we receive defining His character. It's found in Exodus 34, 14, which says, For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. God will not share you today because it is not in His nature to do so. He is a consuming fire and a jealous God. The Lord of the entire cosmos does not have to share with anyone. How can you access this today? How can you have this truth today? Well, look at what He says in Acts 2, verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? The Greek word that Lord Luke uses to describe the situation of their hearts, you know it well. I've said it so many times. Brought on by the gospel and the Holy Spirit was katanuso. To literally be stabbed in the heart. To have a killing blow delivered. And you know what it was, folks? For these men here at Pentecost... For these people in our community, for those in this church who've embraced Jesus Christ, it was a mercy killing. Because that's what he did. If he had not stabbed you in the heart, you would have never turned to him. If he would not have struck a death blow to your peace and your comfort, to your way of walking through this world, then you would have never, ever, ever turned your back on. He had to stab you in the heart and you would see your blood flow forth and then you realize that you were on death's door if God did not act. And that's what he done. He delivered a killing blow. They realized at this moment they were undone. They had unclean hearts and lips were deceived, bound for hell and children of wrath. No longer could these men stumble through life hoping that something better would come their way. They were confronted with their sin and degradation. The corruption of their hearts and the need for the new birth, and they would not let Peter go. Brothers, what shall we do? How many times have lost sinners come into this church and heard the truth and stumbled out that door and went home and ran away from it? These men were not so unwise. What did they do? They went to those apostles and they asked, what can we do? 
If you are at this point today, if you have no hope for the future of all this darkness and sin and agony, then do what these men did when they, when they asked. What should we do? Cry out to God. Throw yourself on His mercy. Hear His call. The one thing I know about preaching is that God is calling. Not necessarily from me. But God is calling to hearts today. Simply, Peter tells him in verse 38 what to do. He says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now look, not just water baptism for salvation as some would mistakenly believe, but repentance and belief which leads to new birth and true and ultimate immersion in the Son of God. That is literally what baptizo means, to be immersed in Jesus. To fall headlong into your Savior and lose yourself in the Son of God. Not looking back. Not looking back. Becoming a pillar of salt. But falling into Jesus. Losing ourselves in Him. In Jesus Christ, obedience to His Word and His command. Repent of your sins today. Believe His truth. Turn your back on the world and your face to Jesus and God will come to you today. This moment can be the day of salvation for someone, for anyone who will hear the words of the Gospel. Repent and believe. God calls today. Repent and believe. Church, church, we always hang around a while. It can be a time of fellowship and joy, and I enjoy it. But if this is the moment in which, church, you realize that you have stumbled upon the path and you've lost your way, then today's the day in which we may need to come together at God's altar and pray. Repent. It's easy to lose your way in this world. It's easy to take your eye off the lantern on the levee that is Jesus. So if you have that to deal with today, I ask you, Stay and let's pray together.